Welcome to the New Zealand China Council podcast. I'm Rachel Maidment, Executive Director of the Council, and today I'm delighted to have with me Professor James Lawrenson. Professor Lawrenson is the Director of the Australia-China Relations Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney. James's academic research has been published in international peer-reviewed journals, including the China Economic Review and the China Economic Journal. James's research focus is on China's economy and the Australia-China economic and broader relationship. James regularly provides commentary on developments in these areas in the Australian Financial Review, the Australian, the Sydney Morning Herald and East Asia Forum, among others. So in sum, James is a great guest to be able to discuss what is happening in the China-Australia relationship. It's a very obviously complicated topic. James, if you could help our listeners today attempt to understand it by perhaps starting at the beginning, that would be great. Great to be with you, Rachel. So to start at the beginning, look, I think I would point to 2017 being a year where the Australia-China relationship changed. Of course, up to that point in 2015, we signed a free trade agreement with China, a bit slower than you guys in New Zealand. We also joined the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank. We had the end of 2014, we had President Xi Jinping addressing the Australian Parliament. But in 2017, things did change. More coverage of China was through a security lens rather than an economic one. And the Australian government clearly became very concerned about Chinese interference. That is different to diplomatic pressure. It's covert and coercive measures that the Australian government formed the view that the Chinese government was taking that was undermining our democracy or eroding our sovereignty. But still, even after 2017, when the political relationship became more tense, the economic relationship continued on pretty much as normal. In fact, when you look at the trade numbers, new records were set in 2017, 18, 19. And it wasn't until last year where you started seeing this spillover of tensions from the politics to start impacting on the economics. So we'll talk more about that today, but that's a very quick summary of where we've come from and where we are today. It's pretty much, it's widely agreed now that the political relationship is at the lowest ebb since it's been, since diplomatic ties were established in 1972. Australian Prime Minister, for example, hasn't visited China since September 2016. That's pretty extraordinary when we're talking about our major trading partner. Right. And in terms of recent, you talk about now it's gone into this economic realm and what has happened there in terms of economic measures that have been placed against Australia? Yeah. So there's a big picture macro story and a more industry level micro story. So let me talk a bit about both of them. When we're talking the spillover, what I'm talking about are things like, for example, in May last year, China decided that Australian barley being exported was being unfairly subsidised. And so they put and dumped in the Chinese market. So tariffs of more than 80% were put on Australian barley exports, more or less making that Australian product uncompetitive in the Chinese market. That was quickly followed by a number of beef uh, processing facilities in Australia having their certification to supply the Chinese market removed, although there's still plenty of other ones that are supplying the Chinese market as normal, so it wasn't a ban. 
Towards the end of last year, we had wine being hit with tariffs of up to more than 200%. Uh, again, clearly eroding our ability to compete and also reports more informal than formal of Australian coal now being banned and not accepted into the Chinese market. So it's quite extraordinary because when you look at China's international economic statecraft previously, China's been known to do this, but it's been very targeted. For example, in the case of Korea, um, back in 2017, China shut off the tourism tap with a dispute with Norway earlier on last decade. It was targeting Norwegian salmon. But now in the case of Australia, we have this whole basket of goods that are being affected. Now, what impact has that had on the Australia-China trade relationship as a whole, what's interesting is just last week, we had it confirmed that the total value of China's goods imports from Australia, so Australia's goods exports to China, actually finished the year at the second highest level ever, 114 billion US dollars compared with 119 billion in 2019. So in other words, at that aggregate level, the totals are actually holding up really well. So China sometimes likes to tell Australia that the Australian economy, it, it can cripple the Australian economy uh, because we're so dependent upon China. That is plainly wrong. That is not true. There's been no major economy-wide impact. Now, of course, once you go into drill into specific sectors, it's a more varied story. In some areas like beef and barley and, and coal, for example, Australian producers have actually been very successful in finding alternative markets. So the diversification has happened as when China shut off the tap, um, other opportunities opened up for Australian producers. But when you're talking about goods like lobster, for example, another good that's been hit, or when you're talking about Australian wine, those are the sectors where real damage is being done because it is simply impossible to find a market that can absorb and pay the prices that China was doing previously. That's really fascinating. And I know that you did a piece for the Lowy Institute for the interpreter in September, and you indicated at that point that all was not lost, and you referred to an increase in wine exports and meat still actually getting accepted across the border. And now we actually have had that pressure placed on wine and also other exports not actually getting across the border. In that case, where do you see the practical impact going forward? It's very hard for me to see the practicalities improving. I think they're more likely to get worse than they are better. That said, I think the Australian government has probably formed the view that all the easy targets for China, most of them have already been hit. Um, at the beginning of the year, the Chinese ambassador in Australia singled out. He did an interview with an Australian journalist and raised questions about whether Chinese consumers might continue to be interested in Australian wine and beef. He listed a number of other goods. And they've all since been hit with trade actions from Beijing. But we know, for example, iron ore, China hasn't touched iron ore, which accounts for about 60% of Australia's total goods exports to China. And of course, we know why China hasn't touched that, because it doesn't have a ready alternative supplier of those goods. So I think probably Canberra is pretty... Obviously, it's not happy with how things are unfolding. There are more and more goods being hit. But the backbone of Australia's exports to China remains strong, and the Chinese government has very little incentive to drag that in. 
you know, wine's been hit, beef has faced some disruptions. There are some other areas where China might go, for example, dairy products. Wool would be another one. But again, when it comes to wool, for example, China doesn't have a lot of other alternative supplier options. So look, I think it's probably likely to get worse rather than better. But I don't see this spreading at the same rate as it did in 2020. So essentially, from a New Zealand perspective, this is obviously something that exporters are concerned about as well. And from your position sitting there in Australia, where iron ore is the mainstay of your trade to China, and that can't be easily, particularly with the issues of iron ore supply out of Brazil at the moment, etc., how do you perceive the risk for New Zealand's basket of export commodities in terms of we're actually currently the number one supplier of food to China? So, you know, with dairy being number one, and I note that dairy actually has been one of the few major export commodities that also hasn't been impacted. Yeah, I think anything that China finds hard to get from alternative suppliers, then that obviously is going to give you some more comfort and will add to resilience. So I think that's right, Rachel. But one other point I would add is that Chinese economic retaliation of the type that's being dished out to Australia at the moment isn't inevitable. In fact, Australia is a bit of an outlier here. I mean, China has diplomatic disputes with plenty of countries around the world. Frankly, some of them reflect challenges that are more serious than those between Australia and China. I mean, we know of the border dispute where Indian soldiers and Chinese soldiers, for example, shots have been fired and soldiers have lost their lives. When it comes to Japan, uh, there's historical grievances and so on. And yet these countries aren't getting hit with Chinese economic retaliation. So if I was sitting in New Zealand, I wouldn't be concluding that China is trigger happy when it comes to these sorts of things. Australia really is a bit of an outlier here. And there is, I'm getting no sense that the um, New Zealand-China relationship, the political relationship, is anywhere near in as bad a state as the Australia-China political relationship is. And so I think that would give New Zealand producers some confidence as well. And why do you think that is? What are your thoughts in terms of why you think that there has been this breakdown in relations with Australia and China and the main causes of that? Sometimes we tell ourselves stories in Australia. For example, last year, a big story we told ourselves was that China was angry at Australia and started punishing our exports because the Australian government called for an independent international inquiry into the origins and global spread of COVID-19. Now, clearly, if that was true, that would be absolutely appalling behaviour by China. The problem is, is that it's largely not true. What China is upset about in the case of Australia, the fundamental problem is this. They believe, they've formed the assessment that the Australian government is, has united with the United States to attack China. That's fundamentally what all these tensions... I mean, China complains about a lot of things in Australia, Australian media coverage of China and, and, and so on. Um, but they all come back to that... Fund, the, the fundamental sticking point is that China believes that Australia is working with the United States to attack China. And there's a bit of background there because back in 1996, the Australia-China relationship was in a pretty bad way. And the way our Prime Minister then, John Howard, 
reset the relationship was that he promised the Chinese leadership that Australia was never going to walk away from its security alliance relationship with the United States, but it would never use that alliance to target China. So this is what China feels the Australian government has um, has reneged on. I think China sometimes overdoes that complaint, but what I would concede is that if I was sitting in the Chinese embassy in Canberra or in the foreign ministry in Beijing, it would be possible to look at things the Australian prime minister has said, the Australian foreign minister has said, and form the perception and form that perception that Australia was working with the United States to attack China. So I think this is something that New Zealand would be wise to be conscious of. of course, you already run your own foreign policy, but your own independent foreign policy. But these perceptions are important as well. Now, in terms of how things have ratcheted up recently in terms of the list of 14 demands and then the now infamous tweet, what do you think has been the impact of that on public perception uh, in Australia and also within government circles? And what impact do you think that will have going forward? I think China has absolutely shot itself in the foot. It has more or less lost public opinion in Australia. Four years ago, Australian public opinion was very broadly positive towards China. That is simply not the case anymore. And it's not hard to see why. When our exporters, our producers are being targeted in this way, it's pretty reasonable the Australian public would take a more negative view of the relationship. That is, I think what's happening in the Australian public at the moment is that they're, previously they saw the strong economic relationship with China as a positive and a strength. Now it's increasingly seen as a risk. And uh, the majority of Australians now think that Australia is too de economically dependent upon China with these latest actions. I think in the Australian government, and I'm just speculating here, but I think they would look at what's happened and conclude that their hard line on China was justified because they would say, well, here we have, here we have a, a, an assertive and aggressive Beijing attacking Australian, the trade relationship in a way that's pretty plainly outside World Trade Organization rules. Well, of course, if that's the sort of China we're going to be dealing with, then we absolutely need to be on our toes with respect to things like foreign interference. And we need to take a very clear eyed, not a sentimental view of this relationship. So I think the Australian government would be appalled by the recent ratcheting up of tensions. But I think it would confirm in their minds their original assessment of the China that we're dealing with in 2021 under Xi Jinping. And in terms of going forward, obviously you talked earlier about the impact of the perception in China, whether this be right or wrong, that Australia to a certain degree is acting in the US's interests uh, in the region. What do you think the impact of the change of administration will have over the next few years and will that improve the situation? Look, I think a Biden presidency can only improve the situation for Australia. Biden is clearly going to take a less ideological approach than the one that the Trump and Pompeo line. And obviously the, the tone of the US-China relationship will settle down. So I think every country in the region, whether it's Australia, New Zealand or anywhere in Southeast Asia, we'd all like the US and China to be that bilateral relationship to be on a more even keel. But 
I don't think it's going to fix things for Australia. The United States government, for example, Biden says that his foreign policy is going to be grounded in, it's going to be a foreign policy for the American middle class. So what that means in practical terms is that United States farmers, for example, Biden will be pushing those links with the fastest growing markets in the world, and that'll include China, obviously. So what we could have happen in Australia is this perverse situation is while we're losing our markets in China, um, it could well be our friends, such as the United States, such as New Zealand, such as Canada, also major agricultural exporting countries that could be taking our markets away. I think there's, you know, at that high level strategic sense, uh, I think the Australia-China relationship will benefit from a Biden presidency. But when it comes to the practicalities, the trade, the economic ties, it seems to me that we're very vulnerable to US-China reset actually negatively impacting on our own interests. That's fascinating. And we saw that too, didn't we, with the trade deal, which was all about China purchasing more US products. And at the same time, of course, we had the Trump administration withdraw from engagement with the CPTPP. Well, I'd be interested in your assessment on this, but you know what we are hearing is that there is unlikely to be a, a quick return to that. I think there is precisely zero chance that under a Biden presidency, the US will join the new TPP. I think that's off the table. Everything I'm reading out of Washington is that both sides of US politics flush with trade scepticism. So I don't think that'll be on the cards. We might see a Biden presidency take a more uh, productive approach to the reform of the World Trade Organization. And for example, getting up the World Trade Organization's review body so that it's functional again. Uh, but look, on the whole, on the trade front, I don't think that countries like Australia and New Zealand um, and other countries that care about a rules-based order around trade in the region, such as Japan, will find a particularly great ally in the United States anytime soon. Uh, in some opening remarks that you made to a roundtable recently about the future of Australia-China relations, you talked about how people-to-people -people ties are resilient, but it's not guaranteed that they won't be affected in the future. And there's potential for public sentiment in China and in Australia to become more negative. Why are you thinking that? And what do you think the potential impact of that could be? In the Australia-China case, there's been some real, there's been some distinct hits to people-to-people -to -people ties that have affected few other countries in, to the same extent. So, for example, in the last year, we've had two Australian citizens detained in China and accused of being national security threats. So what Australian businesses are doing at the moment is they're re-rating their the risks, the level of risks in their in their China uh, um, in their China businesses. You know, there are genuine discussions in corporate boardrooms around Australia at the moment about whether um, Australian executives visiting China, for example, are in fact safe. That's one example of how trade ties can take a hit from a concern um, that started in the people-to-people -people space. And by the way, it's not all one way. Last year, we also had news that Australia's security agency, ASIO, had raided the homes of four Chinese journalists searching for evidence of foreign interference. Those journalists, they weren't detained in Australia, but they returned to China 
You know, I'm hearing from my Chinese academic colleagues, for example, they're worried that if they have a talk with me, for example, and express their views, and if those views weren't those of the Australian government, they're worried that our security agencies might be listening in on those conversations and their safety could be affected if they came to Australia. We know, for example, that two Chinese academics last year who are regular visitors to Australia, in fact, they're the directors of Australian Studies Centres in major Chinese universities, they had their Australian visas revoked on the advice of Australia's security agencies. So this is the sort of the state we're in with Australia-China people-to-people ties. Fortunately, uh, we have a large Chinese diaspora community in Australia. So Chinese citizens in China are not just getting their information from Beijing, but certainly people-to-people ties are under pressure in a way that they weren't several years ago. And uh, obviously, when tensions ratchet up, that has an impact on the local diaspora. Have you found that to be the case in Australia? Yeah, absolutely. The the Chinese diaspora is perhaps the most vulnerable group in this whole saga. And they're they're, they're the meat in the sandwich. So we know, for example, that Beijing would like to corral the local Chinese diaspora to to promote Beijing's um, interests. And when Chinese permanent residents or Australian citizens of Chinese ethnicity say things in Australia that the Chinese government doesn't like, we know they face harassment. Now, that is clearly unacceptable. I mean, that's from an Australian... These people are in Australia subject to Australian laws. The idea that they shouldn't have the same freedoms as someone like me is just disgraceful. And so the Australian government's been quite on the front foot in making that clear to China. But I think those concerns remain. Now, At the same time as acknowledging that and recognising it is a genuine risk and a genuine challenge, what you also see in Australia is Chinese, other members of the Chinese diaspora, afraid to speak out and say anything that might be viewed as being supportive of Beijing. Now, because then they will be labelled traitors. We've had a number of awful episodes in Australia where, where Chinese where Chinese Australians have had their loyalties questioned. Um, and that is and that is equally an affront to a liberal democracy because of course we're all free to have whatever views we like and to give voice to those concerns without having our loyalties questioned. So this is a challenge. I think sometimes the Australian government has been rightly focused on the former challenge, but less proactive in defending the rights of Australians of Chinese ethnicity who may take a different view to the Australian government line, which they're fully entitled to do. Yes, I know um, in a Lowy Institute article you noted that voices of groups with interest in urging moderation have been growing quieter. Uh, Is this a concern for you? Uh, I know that we have had research that's been carried out in New Zealand which has shown polarisation around certain topics to be growing. What do you think is the sort of impact of views in society becoming more polarised around China? Yeah, I, I see this as being very destructive because... You know, we can all acknowledge that China, under Xi Jinping, has become more assertive. And I think most people in Australia, at least, would rather than say assertive, they'd probably say aggressive. So there is a a genuine challenge we need to be facing up to here. We're all in agreement on that. The problem is, is that once you then start to 
target, for example, um, people who say anything that's contrary to a hawkish line and you start describing them as being traitors and attacking the Australian national interest, you lose that the ability to have a nuanced good faith discussion. And that, of course, is counterproductive to addressing the challenges, as well as trying to keep a connection to those genuine opportunities, those real opportunities that engagement with China continues to offer. Of course, I'm talking about the economic opportunities there. But in any case, even if you leave the economics and the dollars to the side, the profits to the side, the reality is, is that China is becoming the dominant power in our region. So in any conception of Australia's national interest, prosecuting any Australian national interest strategy, clearly we want to be able to maintain a productive working relationship with China. So our ability to have those those difficult discussions domestically is crucial and it's not helped when the when people with different perspectives aren't even capable of talking with each other. Yes, and we certainly want people to be talking. Now, you note that China is becoming the dominant power in the region, and you, of course, are an economist. Uh, So, James, can you give us your perspective on how the Chinese economy has been tracking? So the numbers, of course, out of China just yesterday, the official numbers, and you might have some scepticism around those, they they pointed to China's economy growing by 2.3% in 2020, when every other major global economy went backwards. Um, Look, even if you have some scepticism around the 2.3%, I think what is certain is that last year, China's economy outperformed all other major world economies. So we see that in Australia's own export numbers. As I said, despite a global COVID recession, despite the political tension spilling over to affect Australia's trade, the fact is that last year was our second highest level of total exports ever sent to China in terms of total value. So that does speak to the level of activity in the Chinese economy. And as we project that forward, There's lots of reasons to be concerned about China's economy in the future. People point to adverse demographic trends. They point to rising levels of of debt in in the Chinese economy and so on. But I think those sceptics also miss the fairly fundamental strengths of the Chinese economy as well. And mostly there I'm pointing to um, China's growing technological um, prowess. It's levels of innovation. I mean, these are the factors that are going to drive China's continued economic growth into the future. The Australian government itself, in a foreign policy white paper released just a few years ago, it forecast the growth in regional purchasing power out to 2030. And what it suggested, their baseline, of course, these are forecasts. This is not, you know, locked down. But their best estimates are that the Chinese economy out to 2030, will add more purchasing power than the United States, Japan, India, and Indonesia combined. So that's the opportunity. So yes, we need to deal with those genuine challenges, but gee, we want to be balancing uh, both the challenges and the opportunities. We don't want to be giving up on those opportunities. Without a doubt, I mean, in your report that you released on Australia's trade exposure to China, you talked about the zombie economic idea and you talked about those that should have been slain by an accumulation of facts and evidence but continue to walk the land stalking public policy. Uh, and the proposition really, and this is something that we hear on a very regular basis in New Zealand also, that Australian entities are engaging 
too heavily in the China market and they're irresponsible in their, in their risk management and that a national level Australia is too dependent on China. Now, given the trade tensions that have been apparent throughout the last few months in particular, do you still subscribe to the view and could you just articulate you know, why you think that is a, a, an issue? Yeah, so this view that Australia is too dependent on China, I mean, I guess my first question to sceptics would be, well, what level of dependence would you be comfortable with? <laughs> you know, we've got about one third of our exports going to China. Would 25% uh, be more appropriate? What about 20%? And the next question I'd ask is, well, who would we better off? Who would be, we be better off exposed to? The Australian economy is a medium-sized open economy. It's going to be connected to global markets. Over the last year, would we have been better off being like Canada that has 75% of its exports going to the United States, which shrunk last year uh, between between 5 and 10%? So my point is, is that it's all very well to say, gee, it'd be nice in a perfect world to um, have a more diversified basket of, you know, of customers. But in the real world, having a good chunk of our exports going to being demanded by the world's second largest and fastest growing economy. The economy that's adding more new purchasing power than any other economy in the world isn't a bad state of affairs. And look, once we get down to the individual company level, I think many folks, particularly those coming from, say, a security and a strategic background, underestimate the sophistication of businesses. Businesses are not stupid. Right? They know there are risks involved in the China relationship, but businesses are also sensible and they have to balance those risks against the opportunities. And that weighing up of risks and opportunities has in the past led them to conclude that the Chinese market was a good one to be involved in. And I think they've got that call absolutely right. Now, what is true is that over the last year, risk from China engagement has increased. No argument about that. And so now Australian companies are re-rating risks and you will see in the future Australian companies quite naturally having less exposure to the Chinese market because they'll have judged the risks to be unacceptably high. So my point, particularly in that report I wrote, was that this is not something that a Canberra or a Wellington has to dictate or drive. This is something that companies do anyway. So it's all very well. I think you know I'd encourage Canberra and Wellington to have a lively discussion with the business community, let them know how their assessments of risks in the in the bilateral relationship has changed. Uh, but in the end, it's private companies that have their own money on the line. So they've got every incentive to take these risks seriously. And they've also got every incentive to weigh those risks up against the opportunities. And continuing the discussion regarding opportunities, another piece of research produced by ACRI related to the area of scientific collaboration. And this is an area of real importance to New Zealand also, particularly in the area of medical collaborations. We've had some very worthwhile partnerships. Um, what has your research found in this area? Yeah, look, this is this is critical um, because, of course, for Australia, iron ore is the the aspect of the economic relationship that we spend so much time focusing on, and after that, we turn our mind to agricultural exports and to tourism and education exports. 
that's what grabs the attention. And for good reasons, they're all big export earners for Australia. But what we've had bubbling away in the background and that has now reached an extraordinary level that simply hardly gets any media coverage at all is the extent of scientific collaboration between Australia and China. So, for example, last year, more Australian scientific and research publications included a co-author affiliated with a, a Chinese university than an American one. In other words, in that field, uh, China is our number one, is our number one collaborator. So that is an extraordinary shift from where we we're at 20 years ago. And it just reinforces the point that China is not always just about what we traditionally thought of, the iron ore, the agriculture, the services. It is today a science and technology superpower. Now, what we're very vulnerable to thinking in Western countries like Australia, perhaps New Zealand too, is that we are still so far ahead of China in the technology game. Well, that was true 20 years ago. It is absolutely not true now. And in fact, when you look at China, the share of um, scientific publications in chemistry, in engineering, and so on, you know, China's share of global scientific publications in those areas not surprisingly, but I think it's less, not well appreciated, vastly exceeds that of Australia. So in other words, it is in Australia's national interest to be seeking out those collaborations with China because already, and certainly in the years ahead, China's technological progress is not going to go backwards. It's going to continue to increase. There has been a trend in Australia, particularly over the last 18 months, for this research collaboration to be subjected to more scrutiny. For example, this year, the Australian Research Council, a number of grants from the Australian Research Council were actually stopped because it was only a handful, in fact. There's obviously hundreds of these and we're only talking about a handful. But nonetheless, some of these research grants were, um, were, were stopped because of, we're told, we don't know the details of concerns from Australia's security agencies. And look, it's good to take a hard-headed look at these issues. You know, we shouldn't dismiss the possibility that in some areas China might be trying to steal technology. But generally speaking, that is completely wrong. And in fact, it, in many cases, it'll actually be China that's ahead of us. So if anyone's going to be stealing technology, it'll be us stealing theirs, not them stealing ours. So you want to be able to maintain those opportunities, draw the benefits while treating risks seriously, but not shooting ourselves in the foot in the process of doing that. Now, just finishing up, um, James, you've touched on this throughout the podcast, but what is your prediction for the relationship over the next 12 months? I'm not optimistic for the Australia-China relationship in 2021. I think that the fundamental challenge of the relationship, which is that China has formed this assessment that Australia is working with the United States to attack China, um, I don't see any indication in Canberra that they consider that to be a genuine issue or a genuine criticism. So as long as that's the case, and as long as China doesn't change its assessment, I think that provides the fertile ground for a number of other smaller issues to bubble up and become bigger. Uh, let me give you just a couple examples. Just before Christmas, the Australian government passed new laws that would allow the foreign minister to cancel agreements that have been struck with China between Australian state governments, local councils and universities. Uh, it's highly likely that in the year ahead, 
um, the foreign minister will use that law. For the obvious one would be the Victorian state government has signed a memorandum of understanding with China on the Belt and Road Initiative. I think we can expect to see the foreign minister cancel that agreement. And obviously, that's going to provoke a response from China. The Australian government, maybe last year, they might have had concerns about the extent to which China could hurt our economic interests. But all the signs are that at the aggregate level, our exports, even to China, but overall are holding up quite well. So I think Canberra would be pretty comfortable in its position as well. So unfortunately, um, I think it's going to remain tense in the year ahead, at least the political level. Thank you to James Lawrenson for taking the time to provide his views on the Australia-China relationship. For a link to ACRI's website and James's bio, please see our podcast section on our website, www.nzchinacouncil.org.nz. For more podcasts, please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or SoundCloud. Thanks for listening. <laughs>